This is Eric Larson. Check out my new book, The Splendid and the Vile. You're listening to Books on Pod. This was a lovely conversation. And hey, I could actually make a shout out to my daughter, Lauren, who lives in Austin. Hello, readers. Jacob Goldstein is the co-host of NPR's Planet Money and has written about money for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and more. He's also the author of the new book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Jacob, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. All right. So, Jacob, you state the case that ideologically money is two things over all others. It's fiction and it's fundamentally social. Why is money fiction? I think there's this tendency to think of money as something that exists in the physical world like a fact of nature, you know, like the laws of physics. It's not that. It doesn't exist in nature, right? Money is this thing that people made up and have made up at different times and different places and in different ways. And so that's what I mean when I say it's fiction. It's something people made up. And why is it fundamentally social? Well, because it only works if lots of people agree on the rules, right? Money doesn't work if it's just one person saying, hey, this thing is money, or even two people saying, hey, this thing is money. It only works if a large group of people agree and say, yes, this is what's going to be money. This is how money's going to work. Did money evolve from a barter economy like Adam Smith, Aristotle, and so many others have said? It does not seem to be so, although it's such a simple, elegant idea. It's kind of surprising, right? This idea that, well, people used to barter, which we can imagine, and they were like, wow, barter's really inconvenient. For that to work, you have to have what I want, and I have to have what you want. What if we just find something that's kind of scarce that we can all just kind of agree is money, right? It's like a perfect idea. But what anthropologists especially found in the 20th century when they were out doing their anthropology all around the world was it doesn't seem to work that way. What they found instead was small pre-industrial sort of tribal cultures had all these rules about giving and getting and like, for example, what you had to give to somebody's family if you were going to marry them or even what you had to give to somebody's family if you killed someone in their family, like maybe a certain amount of cows in a lot of places, something like that. And the notion now is that those rules are really the roots of money. It's not all that surprising to learn that money originated in ancient Greece. What form did the first money take and how did it change the lives of Grecians? So you're talking about coins, which is definitely the first thing we would look back and say like, ah, I know what that is. That's money, right? And so that started just adjacent to Greece in the kingdom of Lydia, which is now uh, Turkey. It's where Turkey is now, several hundred years B.C. And in Lydia, they actually had this naturally occurring amalgam of gold and silver, an alloy of gold and silver called electrum, which is kind of a hassle in the ancient world, like a nice hassle, nice to have gold and silver. But the mixture is like, well, how much gold is it? How much silver is it? How much is worth? So they started taking these lumps where there was like a fixed ratio of gold and silver, stamping them into fixed sizes and then stamping the lion, the royal seal on them. So this is the first like proto coin. And then people like it, find it convenient. So not long after that, they start making silver and gold coins. And then Lydia gets conquered by the Persians. They kind of disappear. But Greece, which is, you know, right next to Turkey, right next to Lydia, they love coins. And part of the reason is Greece, as we know, is the 
origins of a lot of Western political life, right? Still the first sort of democracy. It's not exactly like our democracy is there. And so money is really useful in a setting where you have too many people to do that tribal, let's all just have some rules about giving and getting. Greece was too big for that. On the other hand, they couldn't do what a lot of kingdoms at the time was doing, which was, well, the king or the priest or whoever is just going to take what everybody makes, what everybody grows and redistribute it, right? So what coins allowed the Greeks to do was find this middle way where it was more bottom up than an autocratic tribute society, but allowed for a bigger, more complex society than the tribal reciprocity of smaller non-industrial cultures. China gets credit for introducing paper money. What form did this paper money first take around 1000 AD? I love that moment. So China was using coins. China had coins sort of evolve independently of the West. And in this one particular part of China, Sichuan province, they used iron coins. And, you know, this was the era when the value of the metal was basically the value of the money. Iron then as now is not worth very much. And so you needed a ton of iron coins to buy anything. Like one historian told me you needed a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt, right? It's like going to the grocery store and having to buy everything with pennies. Terrible, right? So <laughs> some clever merchant in Sichuan figures out, here's what I'll do. You deposit your super inconvenient iron coins with me, and I'll give you like a receipt, like a claim check, right? Just says, Trey left me 10 pounds of iron coins. And anybody who brings this receipt to me can claim the coins. So people took these receipts and started using them as money, right? So this is the origin of paper money. And it persists for a long time where the paper is just like a claim check for the underlying metal. How was paper money a microcosm of something much larger happening in the East at that time? Right. At the same time this is happening in Sichuan, and then it spreads to even other parts of China where they use bronze coins, they recognize that paper money was really useful, right? This is an era, obviously, when there's no automated transport. It's very hard to move things around. So having to move metal around, coins around, is quite inconvenient and inefficient, right? So paper money spreads all over China. And it is part of this real blossoming where it's not just money, but it's markets, which was also kind of what's happening in Greece. This idea of trade, of just buying and selling stuff is flowering. In earlier eras in China, there was a lot of wariness of trade. You could only have markets in really restricted places. And at this moment, markets are allowed to flourish. And so you have this great boom in trade and people are printing books and there's a boom in learning and in technology. They're getting better at growing rice and they invent the magnetic compass. And people in China start getting richer, like not just a few people, but lots of people. And that is the thing that we somewhat take for granted in the modern world. But in the ancient world, it basically didn't happen. So it's like this basic economic miracle that in the West, we typically think of as starting around the Industrial Revolution, you know, around 1800. It actually happened in China a thousand years ago, around the time paper money was invented. What radical idea involving paper money did Marco Polo report to the West that was happening in China around the 1200s? And how did it involve Genghis Khan's grandson? Genghis Khan's grandson was Kublai Khan. As you said, it was about 200 years after the first paper money in China. Marco Polo is this famous traveler from Italy who goes to Asia. And by this time, the Chinese have gone a huge way forward in their use of money. And Kublai Khan is the Mongol emperor. The Mongols control China, basically, at this point. 
they love paper money. You know, they have this giant empire that spans Asia, basically. They're nomadic, so they get how efficient and great paper money is. Kublai Khan takes the big next step, right? Up until this point, the paper has been like a claim check for metal. And eventually Kublai Khan says, you know what? The paper money is just paper. You can't trade it in for metal. It's just paper. It's hard for us in some ways to think of how radical this was. I mean, it won't happen in the West until like the 20th century, basically. It's the 1900s when finally that happens again. And it basically works for a while, partly because Kublai Khan says, use this paper money or I'll kill you. <laughs> so people kind of have to use it. But also maybe because, you know, they've been using paper money for generations at this point. I don't know this from the primary research, but it seems reasonable to think by this point, they kind of get that like, oh, money is just what we agree on. The metal has become a vestige, an artifact that we don't fundamentally need if we all agree that this works. There is this problem when you can print as much money as you want, which is you print too much. Kublai Khan kept trying to attack Japan, which is really expensive, putting all these ships in the sea, putting horses on the ships. And so he ended up printing more and more money and there was inflation. And eventually, the Mongols were conquered, a new empire came in in China, and the new Chinese emperor was very wary of paper money, of markets in general, of all these things that had been flourishing for a couple of hundred years in China. And he eventually, he and his descendants, pushed back on that and returned China to the past. They got rid of paper money. It went away. They went back to using lumps of metal for money. And people got poorer in China, which I think is an important lesson. This idea that economic growth is a one-way street is not true. What China shows us is you can go backwards. A whole civilization can go backwards, can get poorer for generations. Shifting over to the West now, what did English goldsmiths of the 1600s start that's still common in our banks today? The short answer is fractional reserve banking. Uh, the long answer is there had been banks in Europe for a while at this point. The Italians were early bankers. But England, Britain was kind of a financial backwater and was kind of a mess in the 1600s of Civil War. It was a bad scene. So what happened there was people started storing their gold with goldsmiths. Goldsmiths had vaults, they worked the gold, it was a dangerous time. So people would say to the goldsmiths, take my gold. And with echoes of China in the hundreds of years earlier, although they didn't know it at the time, the goldsmiths started giving people paper receipts. Those receipts turned into money. And then the goldsmiths took the next step, which was they started making loans to people and giving those people receipts for gold, even though the people hadn't deposited any gold. So now there is more paper money, essentially, more of these claims on gold than there is gold. And that's the fundamental fractional reserve banking thing, where the banks themselves, in this case, the goldsmiths who are becoming bankers, are actually creating new money. And this is a mixed bag because we don't think of this as a problem, but in many economies at many times, there is a problem where there's not enough money, not, not enough wealth, but actually like a lack of stuff, of transaction mediums. They talked about coin famines in the Middle Ages in Europe. And so the goldsmiths creating paper money is good. It makes it easier for the economy to run. It makes it easier for people to borrow, which is you know good if you're whatever, starting a business. The downside is if everybody with a piece of paper that says you can get gold comes at once and says, I want my gold, the goldsmith won't have it. That is a bank run. And that's a problem forever in banking. We have largely solved it now 
with deposit insurance, with the government basically promising that you'll get your money in the bank. But that itself creates this whole set of problems where the government and the banks are all bound up with each other. So it's a deep, complicated, fundamental problem in banking that they were discovering in England with the goldsmiths at this time. Speaking of insurance, what role did mathematician Blaise Pascal play on the concept of insurance? So this is a fun one. Pascal was a mathematician and a gambler. And around this same time, 1600s into the early 1700s, gamblers were sort of for the first time doing the math about odds. Clearly, they knew something about odds before then. People had been gambling, playing dice forever, but they'd never really gotten into it and done the math. So at this time, Pascal is one of the mathematicians. He was like a mathematical genius also interesting guy had these very intense religious experiences would go back and forth like he would gamble and they would go off to like a monastery or something but he and another mathematician fermat make these basic discoveries about how probability and gambling works and then what happens next is mathematicians who are not that interested in gambling see their work and think oh we can apply this to the world the first one is at the time government sold annuities which is basically if you sell me an annuity i give you some money whatever, $1,000 today, and you promise to give me money every year until I die. You know, I give you $1,000 today. You say, I'll give you 20 bucks a year until you die or something like that. Yeah. So the issue was, just like the gamblers had not been doing the math about what are the actual odds of winning, the government selling the annuities hadn't been doing the math of what are the odds that this person is going to live for 10 years or for 50 years or whatever. And as a result, they actually were selling the annuities for the same price, no matter your age. <laughs> so I could buy an annuity for my 15-year-old kid, who even then, when people died a lot, was probably going to live for 30 or 40 years, for the same price as I could buy it for myself, which doesn't make any sense. The government was losing money on the annuities. So Edmund Halley, famous now for the comet, sees this math, finds this town in Eastern Europe where, for whatever reason, they kept really good records of births and deaths, so he can get numbers of how long do people live, and does the math and publishes this paper where he's like, okay, I figured it out. If you're 20, you're probably going to live for whatever, 30 years. If you're 40, you're probably going to live for 20 years. And he does all of the math, creating this idea of life expectancy and explains how you should price annuities. And that leads to life insurance. A few decades later, the first life insurance company in Scotland pops up, uses the same math, and life insurance is basically invented. And it rests on these ideas that gamblers came up with, which is doing the odds when you have large numbers of events. You mentioned Pascal's ideas on religion, and although this next thing that I'm about to ask you about has little to do with money, his idea on God, it blew my mind. What was his philosophy <laughs> on the belief in God? So there's this idea that poker players call pot odds, where when you're making a bet, it's how much money is on the table and what do you get if you win and what do you get if you lose? And so he has this idea. We all, as human beings, have to bet whether... God exists. And his theory was, well, look, if you think that God doesn't exist and you're right, what do you get? Well, you get to be right. If you think that God does exist and you're right, what do you get? You get eternal salvation. This is the Christian God. He's Christian. So he's like, obviously, the smart bet is bet that he exists. There's way more upside. And he follows his own advice and goes off and leaves the world and goes and becomes a deeply religious person. That is fascinating logic. All right, so I'd heard of the East India Company before, but not the Dutch East India Company. Why is the latter important to the genesis of stock markets? 
Dutch East India Company was founded in Amsterdam around 1600. And this is this era when, as you said, the East India Company you may have heard of is the British East India Company. And this is the era when European countries are sailing around the world and doing violent, terrible things, but also getting rich from doing those violent, terrible things. They're bringing back spices to Europe, selling the spices for high prices. So the Dutch East India Company is one of these colonial trading companies. The thing that happens with that company is they say anybody who wants to can buy a piece of this company, a share of this company that will entitle them to future profits. And anybody who wants to, if you own a share of this company, you just come to our office and you can sell it to somebody else. If somebody else wants your piece of the company and you don't want it anymore, you can sell it to them for whatever price they will pay for it. So this is actually a huge financial innovation. This is the invention of what we would call today a public company. There were versions of it before, but what happens in the case of Amsterdam that's really big is a really active trade in the shares emerges. And it starts out with people on a bridge. They all just go to this bridge where the sea captains come in so you can get the news. Traders always like to trade on the news. And then eventually the city of Amsterdam builds them this special place, this courtyard where everybody can meet for a few hours a day to trade this stock. And that is the world's first stock market. Inevitably, the world's first stock market also has people putting shorts on stocks. What was the first short in stock market history based on your research? There is this guy named Isaac, or maybe it's pronounced Isaac, I don't know, Le Maire, who is Dutch. And he was involved with the Dutch East India Company. I think he was one of the directors. But then he got in trouble. There was some dispute. Maybe he faked an expense report or something, some accounting irregularity. And he gets exiled. And he's very bitter. So he basically decides that he's going to take the company down and he's going to profit from it. And so he essentially shorts it. He makes a bet, a financial bet, where he will make money if the price of the stock falls. And he has all these confederates, these guys working with him, and they start talking about all the problems with the company and the price starts to fall. And then the people who run the company get suspicious, just like today, you know, if you watch CNBC, when a company's price starts falling, you'll see the CEO go on TV and say, oh, I blame the shorts, right? <laughs> it's all these people who are betting against the company and spreading rumors. It's their fault that the price is falling. And the Dutch East India Company was very much tied up with the sort of national identity and national power for the Dutch. And so they passed a law that made it harder to short, to bet against it. Le Maire wound up losing his bet, dying in poverty. You know, the details of that case are murky. But I do think in general, short sellers get a bad rap because everybody roots for the stock market to go up or whatever. But the point of the stock market is not to go up. If the stock market is working well, and it doesn't always work well, but if it is working well, it should give everybody the best possible price for the stock. And the way that happens is you get as much information as possible about the company. And short sellers have a financial incentive to find out actual bad things about the company. If there's fraud going on, or if they're just not as good as everybody thinks, or if there's a competitor nobody's talking about, you want somebody to have a financial incentive to tell the world like, hey world, this company is actually bad. And short sellers have that incentive, which is why I think on balance, short sellers, it's good that they exist. Perhaps on that note, you write that for modern money to work, there needs to be tension. Why is that? Yes, that is actually a good example of it. It's true more generally. You see these cases where 
I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about Joan Law, but there are cases where people try and create an economy or manage an economy. And it seems to often be the case that if one group is too powerful, I mean, to take a classic example, if there's a king who can do whatever he wants, it very often goes badly. The king screws everybody over and that's bad in the long run for everybody. It seems to work better when there are different groups who have power who are sort of fighting over things. So you see this in England around the time we were talking about before in 1690s or so, there's a new king, has less power, parliament has more power, and they create the Bank of England as a way to lend to the king. But it's not just like the king saying, give me some money because I'm the king. It's the rule of law is emerging. Parliament has an interest in the king paying back the money. And so you get this kind of tension. In the modern world, we have it between the government and investors and also banks themselves. And you sort of want, in my view, everybody to be arguing and pushing and pulling and complaining about everybody else. I feel like that gives us the best shot at getting a system where nobody's going to run away with everything and screw it all up. You mentioned John Law. I'm just going to encourage people to check out the new book, Money, <laughs> to read that full story. This is a fascinating one for sure. Now, the history of human access to artificial light helps us understand the evolution of material and monetary progress. How do Edison and the light bulb prove as much? There is this study that I love that an economist did in the 1990s, a guy named Bill Nordhaus, where he looked at for like thousands of years of history, he looked at artificial light. And specifically, he asked if a typical worker works all day and spends their whole day's wages just to light up a room, like the equivalent of a 60-watt bulb today, how long could they do it for? And what he found was in ancient Babylon, thousands of years ago where he started, the whole day's wages got you 10 minutes of light from you know an ancient sesame oil lamp. And that went up only very, very slowly until 1800, by which point, after thousands of years, it was an hour or so. And then you have the Industrial Revolution, which is this moment when everything starts going bananas, increasing really fast. And Edison is obviously the key figure in the history of light. The interesting thing to me about Edison is part of it was science and technology, which is usually the way we think of Edison. That was, in fact, going on. People were learning things. He was famously driven and experimented with thousands of kinds of filaments. That's the part of the story we know. But part of this growth comes not from that side of it, but from finance itself. Edison built his business on patents which is this thing that doesn't naturally exist in the world. You have to have a government willing to grant a patent, which is essentially a temporary monopoly on a new idea that you're willing to share with other people. So A, patents gave Edison a financial incentive to spend all this money to try and make a good light bulb. And then B, once you have a light bulb, you need a whole power grid, right? Like the light bulb on itself is just a piece of glass. And it's really expensive to build a power grid. Even then, it was crazy expensive. So what you need to build a grid is capital. You need a large concentration of money and somebody willing to commit that money. And as it happened, he lived in the era when J.P. Morgan of J.P. Morgan fame was accumulating capital from around the country, really. And delivering it to people like Edison. So Edison got backed by J.P. Morgan, was able to build this power grid in downtown Manhattan, which was the first power grid in the world. And Morgan and the role of capital was so important to the story that when the lights went on, Edison was not at the power station. He was actually at J.P. Morgan's office on Wall Street, which represents the fundamental importance of money itself to this progress. And so then you get more and more innovations through the 20th century. And eventually, light, artificial light, this thing where you used to spend a day's wages to get 10 minutes of light. By the end of the 20th century, 
typical worker spends a day's wages on light and they get thousands of hours, which fundamentally means you get more stuff, in this case, more <laughs> light for the same amount of work. I believe you said a day's labor today gets 20,000 times as much light as 200 years ago. That is a mind-blowing number to think about. It's po- amazing. As you talked about a few minutes ago, the gold standard really started in Great Britain in the early 1800s and was adopted by every major economy by the end of that century. Now, backing a currency with something of value makes logistical sense, but how did the gold standard nearly wreck the global economy in the early to mid-1900s? The real problem came with the Great Depression. And what happened was the standard story of the Depression is there was this stock market crash in 1929, and then everything sort of followed from that. And that was the economist's own story for a long time. But several decades later, these two economists, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, went back, and they looked really carefully at money itself, how much money was out there, what was the Federal Reserve, the central bank doing at the time. And what they realized was the Federal Reserve, which was following the rules of the gold standard, basically turned what would have been a bad recession into the Great Depression. What happened was stock market crashes, businesses start closing, all the standard things. And when that happened, prices started falling. And when prices are falling, you're screwed if you're in debt because your debt is not getting smaller. But what you can sell your goods for or what your wages, that's falling. So you have to work more and more or sell more and more stuff to pay the same debt. So all these people who are in debt, they go bankrupt. And then that makes the problem even worse. And banks start failing because nobody's paying back the banks. So banks are calling in their loans. So the thing you need in that setting and the thing the Fed does today in a setting like this is you need to make prices stop falling. And the first order way to make prices stop falling is for the Fed to lend money like crazy at low interest rates, to put more money out into the system so that banks stop collapsing, so that people's debts stop becoming so overwhelming. But the gold standard prevented the Fed from doing that, right? Under the gold standard, by design, the central bank is limited in how much money they can put out there. So the Fed actually did the opposite thing. They raised interest rates to try and keep their money in the bank and stop demanding gold. And that is what made things even worse, the Fed raising interest rates. And when economists look back, you see this remarkable thing in country after country, because eventually many countries, the US, England, the most important two, are forced off the gold standard. Their economy is falling apart. And they basically say, we're not going to redeem paper money for gold at a fixed rate anymore. We can't do it. We won't do it. And what you see in country after country is the moment they go off the gold standard is the moment things start getting better. So it's a very compelling case against the gold standard. On the flip side, though, is it dangerous for a country like the U.S., of course, who can and does create trillions out of thin air to do so in bailing itself out of bad situations? It's potentially dangerous. It seems like the least bad option. It's possible that a country could print too much money, send too much money to people, and you could have wild inflation. Now, one striking thing in the U.S. is it has seemed like that has been a risk for 10 years or so now, right? After the last financial crisis in 2008, the Fed embarked on this very aggressive plan of putting more money into the economy, trillions of dollars, and smart people said, This is going to cause inflation, which was a reasonable thing to say, but it didn't. And in fact, inflation was persistently low for the past 10 years in a way that is almost mysterious. And if you look now, the Fed is once again creating tremendous amounts of money. Inflation is low now. Some people are talking about inflation. But if you look at what people are actually doing with their money, you can look at 
inflation-protected bonds versus regular bonds. There are various ways you can look at how people with money are betting on inflation. And people now with money are betting that inflation is going to be very low, not very high. So it's theoretically possible that it could be a problem. At this moment in the U.S., it doesn't seem like a problem. You write that a lesson from 2008 is to follow the money, but not in a traditional sense. Is that what you were referencing, what you were just describing right there? The 2008 story is more about shadow banking, about this web of financial things that arose starting in the 70s and really went bananas in the early 2000s and helped to drive the financial crisis. And what happened there was there were things that were a lot like bank accounts, like money market mutual funds is the one that might be familiar to people. Like if you have just something called cash and say your brokerage account, you know, in your Schwab account or whatever, it's actually in a money market mutual fund. And it's not like money in the bank. It's not guaranteed by the government. So what you see over time is new things arise that are like money. A bank deposit didn't used to be like money. A piece of paper didn't used to be like money. And then they become money. So the thing to watch out for is what is the new thing that didn't used to be money, but now sort of feels like money? Those are the things, I think, where you can have real fragility and financial crises. And perhaps one of those things is digital money. I understood very little about digital money before reading this book. It was interesting to learn that the idea for digital money actually began in 1989, but the cyberpunks and others who were trying to start this movement, of course, needed to gain trust with digital cash, like what's needed with all forms of money. How did Bitcoin start to legitimize itself in 2010? Yeah, that's a really interesting story. People worked on it for a long time. In the 80s, this guy, David Chom, was very forward-looking. He was like a Berkeley professor, an expert in secret codes, basically, which is rad, right? He foresaw this world where we were all going to be tracked all the time, which is clearly what came to pass. <laughs> he called it, I think, the dossier society. And his fear was that if we're all using buying and selling in the dossier economy, it'll be like a surveillance state. He used the phrase big brother in this first paper. And there were lots of technical problems. It's technically a very hard thing to create what became known as cryptocurrency. And over the series of decades, these people who were largely techno-libertarians, largely in the Bay Area, in some cases quite radically libertarian, often very smart coders in their spare time solving this series of technical problems. And in 2008, Somebody who's coming out of this tradition on Halloween, I think, publishes what became known as the Bitcoin white paper, which is an explanation of Bitcoin. And early the next year, Bitcoin starts. And obviously it has taken off. Why is it something that has lasted and made it into popular culture, whereas other digital currencies are still struggling to do so? Well, that's an interesting question. Technically, Bitcoin is really clever. It solved a lot of problems that people had been trying and had solved parts of, but it's really this complete system. And maybe the most remarkable thing about it that separates it from what other people had tried is you don't need any central trusted intermediary. You don't need a bank. You don't need a government. In very clever ways, everybody who uses Bitcoin is looking over everybody else's shoulder to make sure it's all legit. So the idea that you can have digital money without having some person in the center keeping track of everything is a real technical innovation. Now, it's not clear to me that it's going to work as money or take over the world or whatever. I'm not saying that. But technically, it's just really good. And I think that's actually a big part of its success. Finally, you lay out three possibilities regarding the future of money. I'm not going to have you summarize all three. People need to read the book for that. But 
How does a world without banks work? The idea of a world without banks is something that people have been talking about, at least since the Depression. And one of the most interesting things to me about it is, at first glance, this seems like a very lefty, liberal idea. I think of people on the left as being skeptical of banks. But in fact, a lot of the people pushing this idea are quite conservative. Milton Friedman, maybe the most famous conservative economist in the U.S. in the 20th century pushed it. There's a guy named John Cochran now who very much comes out of that tradition. He's at the Hoover Institution who has pushed ideas like this. And this actually gets back to the idea we were talking about before, this idea that fractional reserve banking is inherently fragile, right? The goldsmiths loaning people pieces of paper they didn't have the gold for. That problem is still inherent to the way banks work today. And the way we've tried to solve it is by basically making banks really highly regulated that government insures their deposits and tries to oversee them a lot. And clearly it doesn't always work. So what these people like Milton Friedman and John Cochran say is, look, fundamentally a bank does two different things. One is it makes loans and that's useful. It's good that people can get loans. The other thing it does is it's like our money warehouse, right? It's the place you can get your paycheck direct deposited. You get cash out of the ATM. You do bill pay from there. That's also useful. But the fundamental problem with banks is that more or less, they take your deposits and lend it out to somebody else. So when everybody goes and says, I want my money back, they don't have it. So what these people say is, let's just split those two things. So you could have a money warehouse over here. That's one kind of business. And you might pay a fee to use the money warehouse because they're providing you a useful service, just like you pay for whatever cell phone service, although it'd probably be cheaper. And then on the other hand, let's have another kind of company that makes loans. And that company if it loses money, right, if it lends out a bunch of money and doesn't get paid back, it's fine because it's not your bank deposit. It's not money that is guaranteed to be there for you. And nobody is really talking about this idea right now. It doesn't seem like it's about to happen. There are certain problems that come with it. But I have to say, intellectually, on the level of basic ideas, it does have a certain appeal. He is Jacob Goldstein, co-host of NPR's Planet Money, and has written about money for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and more. He's also the author of the new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jacob, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Oh, it was great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.